I must say once again that I am very, very grateful to be able to participate in this outstanding marriage retreat. I'm telling you, all of the work, all of the work that goes into this, what a, what a blessing, what a wonderful blessing for all of those that are connected with putting this marriage retreat together. You know, when I think of the Shoto congregation, I'm mindful of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 that says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And the work that you are doing with this marriage retreat and the investment in the future of this congregation is priceless. You see... Faithful, strong congregations start with strong and faithful families. And those strong and faithful families start with strong and faithful couples and marriages. And so I am so grateful for what you are doing. It, it should serve as, as a program that others would get involved with as well. As we begin this retreat, and by the way, I find it rather ironic that we are preparing for the battlefield, arming our marriage with God's armor, at a retreat, but as we begin, I would like to begin with a story from another seminar which I recently discovered in an old 2002 church bulletin from Louisville, Kentucky. I would read, a dietitian was once addressing a large audience in Chicago. He said, the material we put into our stomachs is enough to have killed most of us years ago. Red meat is awful. Soft drinks corrode your stomach lining. Chinese food is loaded with MSG. Vegetables can be disastrous and none of us realizes the long-term harm caused by germs in our drinking water. But there is one thing that is the most dangerous of all and we all have or will eat it. Can anyone tell me what food it is that causes the most grief and suffering for years after eating it? A 75-year-old man in the front row stood up and said, Wedding cake. <laughs> the article goes on to say, I don't know if the man gave the answer the dietician was seeking, but he certainly answered the way many folks feel about marriage. Let me quickly say that there are many of us who do not agree with his answer. It was God who originally designed marriage, Matthew 19, 1-6. And when lived within God's boundaries, it is the closest thing to heaven we can know on this earth. It is so sad that many have just decided to buy into Satan's attacks on the home. If we want to make a difference in our community and school and the church... It begins with a good, strong, loving, faithful Christian home. The home can't be a constant battlefield without producing a lot of casualties. Wars claim lives, but broken and divisive homes will destroy a nation from within. The third and final paragraph of this little article reads as follows. We need renewed devotion to our families and seek to do all things that are pleasing to God. I would also add that we need a renewed devotion to God in order to do all things that are beneficial for our families. 
Yes, your family will stand out as different among many of your peers, but so be it. Your husband or wife and children deserve the best you can give. By the way, after all these years, I still like to eat wedding cake. Neat little article, and it really helps to set the foundation for this marriage retreat. You know, the world sees marriage sort of like that elderly man explained about wedding cake. The world sees marriage as a ball and chain, as it were. We often talk to those about to get married, especially the men, and talk about, you know, their days are over as free men. And, you know, we hear songs with titles like, Love is a Battlefield. And so, before we get into the actual full armor of God in preparing ourselves for the battlefield and arming our marriages with the full armor of God, this introductory lesson is actually entitled, Well-Grounded in God's Love. Before we get to the subject of protecting our marriage, we must make sure that we understand the godly love that leads to it and then protects and sustains it if we are going to enjoy and get the absolute best that our God intended, designed, and desires for us to get out of it. And so tonight I want to do that by having us think for just a moment about a broader landscape of time than just this moment that we are living in, just our lifetime. You know, today in our culture, love has some tragic, tragic, totally distorted and disfigured definitions. And I want us to think not in terms of this current snapshot of time, this mere moment that we live in, but I want us to consider that in contrast to going way back to the first century and God's idea of love, God's definition of love. As I said, today there are some terribly tragic, totally distorted, and disfigured definitions of love in our society. Today, love means no corrections, no boundaries, and no discipline even if the one you love is headed for self-destruction. You know, you see children today misbehaving, and in our society, parents, it seems, don't even dare to correct those children. But godly love is just the opposite. Proverbs 13 and verse 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Right there you can see the contrast. Children today, we claim in love, we're not going to discipline them. But God says that love does discipline them promptly. I remember many years ago when I was driving tractor trailer, we used to have safety meetings with the company that we rented equipment off of. And they were talking in one of those meetings it was many years ago, I don't remember all the details, but they were talking in one of those meetings about a car accident that had happened. They were trying to make sure that we used our seat belts at the time, and they talked about an accident, and this woman had been involved in an auto accident, and her little, I don't remember how old, toddler son, small, small child, had gone through the windshield and gotten killed, or at the very least, 
hurt very badly. I don't recall which, but at any rate, afterward, somebody asked why the youngster wasn't seat belted. And the lady replied that, well, she loved him too much. She didn't want to restrain him. You see, that's not love according to God. Love without restraints is a product of the 60s sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture. It is not the result of following the God of love who wrote the book on it. Think with me today about how the world defines love. How the world defines love when it comes to the practice of homosexuality. You know, today you're called a hater or a bigot if you try to tell somebody who's engaging in homosexual activity that it's wrong to do that. You're considered as somebody who hates that person if you try to correct their behavior that is going to lead them to destruction. But you see, godly love is just the opposite. Godly love warns. Godly love informs. The most loving thing you can do. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 6 tells us that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices with the truth. So once again, we see that the world's definition of love today is this totally disfigured, distorted, and destructive thing. Today, love is also seen as an entirely and exclusively heartfelt emotion, as a feeling, as a momentary excitement or elation. That's why when the new wears off and the feelings fade or disappear or one spouse doesn't get what they want, all of a sudden, I don't love you anymore. And the marriage ends. But... God told us a long time ago, in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God is trying to tell us there that the most deceitful thing in the world is our heart, our emotions, running on pure emotion, feelings. That, those are the most deceptive things on the planet. In fact, in that passage... In Jeremiah 17, we'd see the contrast between the fleeting outcomes of trusting the ideas and definitions of men versus the long-term and unending productivity, even in the hard times, of following the definitions of the word of the living God. Let us take a look at Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Now, I understand the context there is, is slightly different than talking about the definition of love, but it's still applicable. A lot of the texts that we are going to talk about in this marriage retreat are texts which, although they were not written specifically about marriage in their original context, they are certainly applicable. And this is one. In defining love, Defining godly love when it comes to our marriages, we cannot go by the definitions of man. We cannot go by what man says love is. Because if we do, we're in for trouble. But look at verse 7. Blessed is the man, this is by contrast, 
who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. And he will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. You see the contrast there in verses 7 and 8. The man who trusts in God, or in the context of this marriage retreat, the man who trusts in God for his definition of love and for what real love really is, even during times of drought or bad times, he's still going to be fruitful and is still going to work. And we'll notice again in verse 9, where God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Right there in Jeremiah, what he's simply saying is, is you've seen what trusting in man can do in his definition. You've seen what trusting in me can do, God says. Don't let your heart and your emotions cause you to trust in man. Trust me, God says. Now, while feelings are one element and the result of love, God's definition of love is not something that is based simply or firstly on feelings or the heart. And the reason for this is that even the strongest of feelings can be completely erroneous and misleading. Even the strongest of feelings can be completely wrong and can lead us to act foolishly sinfully, and even fatally. We would simply mention here 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, where King Saul felt compelled, he just felt compelled to give the offering. But when the prophet came to him, he said, you have acted foolishly. You see, King Saul felt compelled. He felt with all his heart that he needed to do this. He just felt in his heart this was the right thing to do. And he felt really strong he had to do it. But the prophet says, you've acted foolishly. How foolish you were to do that. We would notice in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5, David and Bathsheba, enough said. And we would also notice in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, how the Apostle Paul therein relates that earlier on as Saul of Tarsus, how he felt that he must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. He even went so far as to kill for his convictions. He felt that strongly, and yet his feelings were totally wrong, totally erroneous, as he tells us. And finally, and similarly, while sexual intimacy is an incredibly beautiful gift and blessing from God, that's what it is. It's an incredibly beautiful gift and blessing from God for those who love and are married to one another, as we will discuss more in depth later on in this retreat. Sex alone is not love either. Animals, rapists, have sex, but it's not love. Animalistic lust or instinct is not the same as love. So having looked down through it, some of the definitions the world would give us of what love is or love should look like, a feeling, emotion, etc., 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 what exactly does God's concept or definition of true and godly love really look like? 
I will tell you right now, it doesn't look anything like what the world around you says it is or depicts it as. You see, love, according to God's definition, is not a me first, but it is a you first thing. It's just the opposite of what the world tells us. For example, we all know the most quoted verse in the Bible, John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved that he what? That he gave. Let's stop right there. God so loved. He loved so much, so strongly, so completely. God so loved that he gave. You see, God's definition of love is to give. If we would note Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 42, it says this. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Notice verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. There's our word again. To give. To love is to give. And to give his life a ransom for many. To love is to serve to love is to give. To love is to serve another or others by a complete and total surrender of yourself. And folks, that is especially true in our marriages. To love is to serve another by a complete surrender of yourself. There's an old story, maybe you've heard it many times, and if so, I'm uh, sorry, but I have to tell you again because it's just so fitting for the point that we're trying to make. The story was told, the, the illustration was given of a farmer who had a wife who was either very ill and passed away or, or she was very ill and began to get better. But at any rate, the chicken and the pig were walking through the farmyard and they wanted to make the farmer feel better, at least the chicken did. So chicken said, hey, got a great idea. Let's, let's make the farmer feel better. Here's what we'll do. We'll fix him a bacon and egg breakfast. <laughs> And the pig looks at the chicken for a minute and says, that's easy for you to say, but for me, that requires a complete commitment. <laughs> and you see, to truly love according to God requires a complete and total commitment. To truly love according to God means to give all you've got and to sacrifice yourself totally in service to another, even and especially when it's rough, when it's hard, when times are lean, when struggles are there, maybe even when they didn't earn it, don't deserve it, or can't repay it. Listen to this definition from Scripture. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3, 16. And folks, if that much for the brethren, how much more so for our spouses? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We see again, to love is to give. He goes on to say, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians 5 verses 22, 25, and 33. I said last year, when I was in the midst of doing the marriage retreat, that Guys, we've got a, a really strong, really overwhelming command there. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Think about what he gave for the church. It was not always pleasant or comfortable. He went to that cross. Look at all the things that he endured, but he did it for his bride, the church. Guys, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. Let us also remember that God is not only the universal expert on true love. He is the exact, complete, and absolute essence and expression of love incarnate. 1 John 4 and 8. And he's not only demonstrated to us exactly what true love looks like in Christ Jesus... But he also wrote the book on it and gave it to us to serve as the one and only absolute guide as to what lasting love in our marriages must be comprised of. He not only came and went to the cross to show us, but then he gave us the book to remind us. You know, many of the passages on loving, long-lasting, Christ-like relationships, which we typically use in other contexts must be used and applied especially to our marriages. One of them is Matthew 7 and verse 12, what we would refer to typically as the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus reminds the people that the entire Old Testament can be summed up in this way. This is what it's all about. It is about treating one another as you would like for them to do to you. If you've got a spouse in a marriage and they say, I really wish that my spouse respected me more. Respect them more. Well, I, I really wish my spouse would listen to me. Listen to your spouse more. As you want others to do to you, that's what you need to do to them. This is what we call the golden rule. What a beautiful rule for marriage. Well, I want my husband or wife to take more interest in the things that I like than take more interest in the things that they like. We would also note Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 29 and running through chapter 5 and verse 2. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. What a beautiful verse for marriage. 
Never let a corrupt word come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for necessary edification. Everybody wants to be encouraged. Everybody wants to be edified. We're not talking about false flattery here, but we're talking about necessary edification. We're talking about so deeply needed encouragement that it may impart grace to your spouse. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, notice the word all, all of it, don't be bitter with your spouse. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Did you notice how he begins verse 31? Second word in is all and the second word to the last is all. Get rid of all of it. There's, there's no place for any of it. You know, we're all in this thing together. We're all flawed human beings. We all need each other's love and grace and encouragement and, and edification. We all make mistakes. We all have flaws. We're all weak and we all need to be picked up by our spouse. Verse 32. And be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. You know what the problem is with tender-hearted people? They get their feelings hurt. They get their hearts broken. That's the problem with tender-hearted people. And it hurts. You know what God says about that? Be tender-hearted anyway. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. When you go to God and you tell Him how sorry you are and you repent of your sins, does God forgive you fully? Well, of course He does. And notice what it says. Just as God in Christ forgave you, spouses, you are to forgive one another. He goes on in chapter 5 and verse 1 and says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, watch this, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. There it is again. You cannot separate the giving of yourself from truly loving somebody. And if you truly love somebody, you are going to be a giver of yourself. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Please notice that Ephesians 4.29-5.2 through 5, 2, that we just read leads into and lays the groundwork for the marital love that is later going to be discussed in chapter 5 as well as the full armor of God that is going to be discussed at length from chapter 6. This sets it up. However, one of the passages that is used almost exclusively in the realm of marriages, which needs to be reiterated here, because it captures the essence of what godly love is comprised of in just a few lines, is from the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, specifically, chapter 13. Beginning at verse 4. I know that many have this pretty much memorized and probably heard it at a lot of weddings, but let us consider carefully 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love suffers long or is patient and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Again, it's not a me first thing. Love is not me first, it's you first. Therefore, love does not parade itself and is not pumped up. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Again, the same idea. It's not about me. It's not about 
what's in it for me. It's about what I can give to you. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, it's my understanding that in the original language here, the idea is that love never fails to be those things. Love never fails to be long-suffering, kind, and all of those other things. Love never fails to meet God's definition. And if it fails to meet God's definition, as seen in verses 4 through 7, then it's not love, because love never fails to be those things. What we all should be working towards with our spouse is that in their most brutally honest and objective moments, they should still be able to describe us by putting our name in there. My husband, my wife, use a name, is patient and is kind. Would your spouse say that about you? Love does not envy. Would your spouse say that about you? Not envious? Doesn't parade him or herself? Does not behave rudely? Does not seek their own? My spouse is not easily provoked. My spouse thinks no evil. My spouse endures all things. Never fails to meet that definition of godly love. Now I'm going to warn you ahead of time. And I'm about to use one of the dirtiest words you will ever hear out there in the world. <laughs> A dirty word, at least according to the world. It's coming. Not only does God's definition and expression of godly love include all these things listed in 1 Corinthians 13 that we've read and talked about, as well as some of these other things, and, and just it's just about giving and sacrificing... But God's definition and expression of godly love is that it is an utter, abject, absolute and complete, here comes that dirty word out in the world, commitment to those things. Commitment. Look in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, wherein it says, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Notice his face was set steadfastly, verse 51. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what that means. That means that no inhabitant of earth... No demon below the earth, no personal pain or sacrifice, not even the hordes of hell were ever going to prevent Jesus Christ's commitment to finishing what he started when he committed himself to loving us, his bride, his church, above all else. Nothing. Not even the pain of the cross 
was going to stop him from keeping his commitment. And I want to tell you, there's a beautiful passage in the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of beautiful passages. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is beautiful. But for the sake of this study, Hebrews 7 in verse 25 tells us that Jesus still lives to serve us by interceding for us. Jesus Christ is still committed completely to his bride, his people, his church. What an awesome God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands and do them good all the days of your life. Proverbs 31 in verse 12. You know, according to every single scriptural definition, expression, and instruction of Almighty God, godly love is not anything as superficial or temporary or self-serving as just a simple good feeling or sinful experience, no matter how heartfelt or firmly held the conviction to the contrary may be out there in the world. Paul Overstreet, probably my favorite male singer of all time, has an old song out entitled, Even When It Don't Feel Like It, It's Still Love. All that Jesus Christ went through to go to the cross for you and me. That trek up to Jerusalem knowing that they were going to arrest him and mock him and scourge him and crucify him. All that he went through, the separation from his father, all of it, none, none of that felt good. As he raised up on that old wooden cross trying to catch his breath with every word as his lungs were just in the mess they were in. Just, it was so awful, it did not feel good. And yet, he stayed committed no matter what. Godly love is an absolute and lifelong commitment, a total and complete commitment to serve and to sacrifice yourself and your wants and your needs and your desires and your comfort for those of another. That's God's definition. It's what we might call unconditional love, and it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is the kind of love God exhibited to us when he sent his son to die on the cross, John 3 and verse 16. It is the kind of love Christ had and has for us in coming and going to the cross, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It is the kind of love which only true Christians have fully experienced at the hand of Almighty God and therefore have the best chance of exhibiting to one another. Ephesians 4, 32 through chapter 5 and verse 2. This kind of godly love, this kind of unconditional love, this kind of committed, godly, sacrificial love is, with the exception of of only the gift of salvation that we have through Jesus Christ and all that accompanies it, the greatest gift and blessing that you will ever give to another or be given by another, ever. It is the kind of love which would solve the divorce and broken home and family's problem in this country in a heartbeat if people would but hear and obey 
the God of love and the God who is love. And it is the kind of prideless, selfless, humble, and self-sacrificing love against which Satan is absolutely powerless and therefore seeks to erode, assault, and undermine at every opportunity, as we'll talk about in the ensuing sessions. But as we close this session, what I want to leave you with is this thought. You know, maybe you haven't been the husband or wife that you know you need to be. Maybe you haven't loved with a godly love the way that you've heard tonight, God loves all of us. Maybe there's some changes you need to make. You know, you can't change the past. You can't change the mistakes and failures of the past. But you sure can change the future. If you're somebody who needs to do that, talk to somebody. Maybe your spouse. Rededicate yourself, as the old Diamond Rio song title says, to loving a little stronger. You can't change yesterday, but you can change tomorrow, and that starts right now.